After a year of running experiments, we realized that successful sellers and marketers didn't have the next greatest playbook. They actually had frameworks, insights, and tests that they ran and refined. Welcome to the B2B Power Hour, where we align go-to-market teams together to win the right business with better experiments. I'm your host, Nicholas Dickett, and I'm a seller. And I'm your other host, Morgan Smith, and I'm a marketer. Join us for live shows and interviews that will help you learn what to test so you can sell and market better to your customers and prospects. Now, on to today's episode. Morgan, 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 you bring me on here to go and talk about what? What is it that's the tea today in the sales world? Ooh, are we doing tea today? <laughs> <laughs> also, I like that you started with the, the classic intro, the intro that hasn't been around at the B2B Power Hour for a long time. I can't tell you how many messages I get with that in it. Oh. Like, I need you to go and do the Morgan, 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 Morgan again. You, why did you stop doing that? That's That was one of my favorites. It's like, oh, it's going to end up being a meme or something. <laughs> it just doesn't roll off the tongue as well when I say Nick, Nick, Nick. It's it, And like Nicholas, I think is too many syllables. I don't know. It works well. Anyways, we are talking about the state of sales development in 2023 today. This is uh, for everybody listening. I think the first of our new flavor of episodes where we're dropping some hot takes and we are just riffing on this problems, solutions to those problems, challenges, and things that we've been observing over the past couple of years, probably, but especially in the last few months, what we've been seeing when it comes to sales development. As the marketer. Oh. As the marketer. <laughs> okay. That's... When it comes to sales development, what is top on your list, buddy? What's grilling you? One of the interesting things I think companies have yet to figure out, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, is it's the classic dilemma of like where to put SDRs, but then there's like there's like a cascade of issues that emerge from that, which is like, we have worked with so many account executives who are not full cycle. And so they expect like an SDR or a BDR to do prospecting work on their behalf or as a tag team, particularly for strategic accounts. But then it's like, is that the most optimal model? I'm not convinced that's the most optimal model. That's basically where I'm at. <laughs> God, you teed this up with a big one. Mm. You shit. I try. Okay, so... I always find it interesting when we start working with the customer when we're doing our aligned go-to-market work or even workshops, and we start talking about SDRs, and they're using BANT, and then we start talking to marketing, because somehow we it always goes back to that, and we start talking about ADA, and then we go and talk to account executives, and then they're using Medic, mainly, maybe others, but it's like, okay, so... If we stop putting ourselves first and we put the buyers first, what would that look like instead? And I know that kind of sounds like an ugly truth, but like, what are the lead stages? Because I always look at it. So I, I posted about it today. And so when you guys hear this, you'll, you'll know when this was recorded. But uh, I was doing a disco call with a VP of marketing and he was complaining about how horrible the sales team was and just ripping them apart. And... When he first brought up that they nobody was actually reaching out to marketing leads for over a week, I'm like, oh, okay, that would piss me off too. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a problem. That's a big problem. And then we started peeling the onion. That was his bias kicking in because he didn't ever think to ask why. And so I asked him to go and pull some numbers and let like let's dive a little bit deeper. Let's meet again. Let's discuss. Well, 
Guess what the closing rate was on <laughs> on marketing leads? Oh no! Oh no! On marketing leads? Oh no! I'm sure it's something horrifically low. Two percent? Is that too low? Lower. One point three. Oh, I thought two percent was horrible. And uh, this their self source sales was doing just over twenty percent. Like it wasn't spectacular, but. A five to one opportunity to win ratio is pretty normal. Mm-hmm. And so when I started digging in and I'm like, okay, so how do you, what, what qualifies as a MQL? Yeah. It's Salesforce all over again, buddy. Yeah. Oh, gosh. The classic. Top of funnel professional development content that an eager beaver would want to go and have in their hands because it's good knowledge. And how in the hell has that any relevance to me buying anything or wanting to buy anything by trying to better myself? This is the problem that I find with so much marketing content. Yes. Is they they haven't understood the demand. And you guys can see I'm talking with my hands here. You can't see it, but like there's like the demand versus like, what do you want to call it? Performance marketing or what you call it? Life cycle marketing or, you know, marketing that works. Mm-hmm. But uh don't know anything about that. You know, if you're trying to use it as part of the pipeline, it should be mid to late funnel content. That is what's pulling them in. I would actually go and have anything that's like industry related knowledge. Like how does a CRM work? Like top level, like some, why is that gated? Like you have to really think of like why somebody would be seeking that information out. Right. Right. And so these guys are getting these leads and they'd go and call them and they'd be like, and they put them in pipeline, not even in like a lead stage. It was pipeline. See, that's a freaking frustrating to me because <laughs> one of the funny debacles in sales and marketing alignment that we see a lot, and that really does frustrate me, is there's not an agreed upon cross-functional definition of lead stages. And why shouldn't marketing and sales development share that? To me, it's like, yeah, there are some things that are marketing exclusive domain. Like, of course, marketing has a separate and defined function from sales. And there's a great newsletter I was reading this morning that was like marketing's only job is not just as a service organization to sales. Like there are longer term things that marketing does that they are designed to do and that they should execute on. But when it comes to the funnel and thinking through lead stages, It is astounding to me the number of organizations that don't share definitions cross-functionally between a marketing team and a sales team. And this is where, for me, asking, should an SDR service marketing or or, serve the marketing leads or serve the sales function? I, I mean, if you don't have a shared definition, it doesn't really matter who's in the kitchen. It's nobody knows what they're cooking. Amen. And I think it's a huge flaw right now. And then my biggest frustration is they throw it into pipeline. (laughs) Just so weird to me. My first stage in pipeline has always been 0% win. Like my chance of winning is 0% because until they tell me why there's a reason to change, I might have an assumption of why they should change. I would hope I would if I'm calling them or annoying them with whatever reason. Like there should be a legitimate reason to go and reach out. But until they've told me there's a reason and screw bands. It's such a waste of time. Anybody wants to come at me for it. They're more than welcome to. There's a reason why only transactional sellers use Bant, not enterprise. But here we go. We're going and working on Bant. How do you have budget for something that doesn't exist? Right. 
So what are you just hoping and praying that they prioritize it next quarter and you're just the magic seller that managed to call at the right time for that, what, two or three percent that are in market right this moment? Yep. And you've managed to go and do it without, you know, beating the RFP. It's so ass backwards. Better had your lucky charms in the morning if you think <laughs> that's what's how this is going to play out. Like the level of stupidity in that thought process is so frustrating. I think a lot of people confuse a predictable revenue model with an ability to forecast. Because a predictable, re- like Ooh, the predictable let's, revenue let's, model, yeah, right? Feel this apart, Morgan. Ooh. <laughs> but like the predictable revenue model, quote unquote, that has scaled Salesforce originally and then was made famous is all about defining each stage of the process, putting predictable percentages for how a, what percentage of leads will move from one stage to the next. So then you can project uh, or forecast not just pipeline, but also closed deals and therefore revenue. But it is anymore what you and I have continued to see in our go-to-market work. And even for people like not just our clients, but even folks we talk to is you can forecast without necessarily having each stage of that funnel defined, particularly pre-pipeline. And this is the difference. The marketing's engine does not need to be, this is kind of controversial, actually, I guess. (laughs) Marketing's engine does not need to be quantitatively defined at every stage of the, the buyer's journey, right? And this is where we all get asked backwards. We say, oh, well, that person downloaded an ebook. And we know that 30% of the people who download the ebook convert if we reach out to them. It's like, well, yeah, I guess. And how many bridges did you burn in the process? Right. <laughs> there goes 70% of your leads, by the way, if that number is true. They're not in market. They're not interested in having that conversation. But just because you haven't defined that or you don't have a process to follow up with people who consume your content doesn't mean you can't forecast pipeline or you can't forecast revenue. That's, to me, the disconnect. Just because you define these stages doesn't mean you have to in order to understand where the company is going. Most companies are still below 50% accuracy on forecasting. Why? Because the whole thing is based on bullshit to start out with. If you're a sales manager that does one-on-ones to go and discuss forecasting and deals, you should be replaced by a CRM. And the reason being, and I know this sounds harsh, but this is my frustration that we come across all the time, is as a sales manager, we're coaches, just like enablement, enablement on its own is shooting in the dark until they have some proof of where there's a problem. And so if they're, and Todd Capone said this so well in his book, The Transparent Sales Leader, nobody's ever going to go and tell you that they're at 60% to quota if you're not going to be there to support them and help them. And all you're going to do is chastise them for being there. Well, no shit. I'm at 60%. I know that, <laughs> you know, cool. You're going to go and make me feel like an idiot. How does that help me? And this is my problem. These managers shouldn't exist. They provide no value to the company. They're just excess burn. Replace them with a CRM. But what we see right now is those sales leaders and those managers that act more like coaches, they diagnose the issues that are going on in their sales force to understand where people are winning and where they're not, and also where there's opportunities to go and grow, are the ones that are hitting quota right now. But that's rare. And then even like you go back to you're talking about lead stages and shared definitions. If me and you are working together and you're marketing and I'm I'm sales and we're running a campaign together, if we're not having some type of definitions between me and you, how do we know where to improve? Yes. 
And this is what I was saying to that director of or the VP of marketing. I'm like, okay, somebody could say that you're failing, but what this really is, is a call for you guys to work together. Because if you're collaborating, working as a team to solve for this, whether it's through a sales lens or marketing, it's irrelevant. But if you're tracking the right numbers, you have the same stages and you're working in unison, you're going to build momentum and you're going to figure it out. But if we keep having our own metrics and we keep having our silos, what's the point? That is the source of my frustration because you can't learn from that. You can't grow. There's no value. All it is is frustration and we just play into the stereotypes that I know I tease about. But really, the stereotypes are going to remain there until we make a change. And that changes. We start working and acting like a team. We've all seen sports teams that don't do that. They don't go far and they never win everything. So I think it's time to learn. I think that's the maybe the revision that I have on the predictable revenue. I realize I should probably clarify what I meant, which is that sort of measuring everything on the marketing side, no matter your definitions, leads you to a certain kind of sales behavior, right? And I mean, organizational behavior, not individual behavior, where somebody attends your webinar. Now they're a lead, we should follow up with them. And that's because we've constructed this model that says X percent of people who come off these webinars convert, therefore, we should reach out to them. So we reach that X percent of people who convert, therefore, come into our pipeline. Same thing with people who download ebooks, same thing with people who show up to an in-person event, or any of these sort of traditional marketing activities. Paid ads are a little bit of a different story. But the truth is that buyers aren't ready to buy until they're ready to buy. And there is a lot that an individual seller can do to change their mind, right? That's the art of both marketing and selling, which is we're in the business of changing people's minds. But a buyer is not ready to buy until they're ready to freaking buy. So it's like the classic pressure campaign I see that a lot of sales organizations deploy in order to, quote unquote, change somebody's mind. The thing that I've admired most about working with you is if somebody's not ready, you just say, that's great. And you move on to somebody else. And like, sure, we can nurture them, right? We can follow up with them, but we're not going to put them in a 13-step email sequence over the next 60 days in order to try and change their mind, right? I might put them into a 13-step nurture sequence where it's based on education and helping them better understand the problem or helping them with their jobs to be done in that role. Yes, because I'd rather be trusted, respected, and seen as a credible resource than hounding them to buy something that doesn't make sense. Do you think compensation plans encourage that kind of behavior in sales development? Oh, hell yes. Okay, yeah. Well, think of how is sales development compensated? Book meetings, sometimes, quota, sometimes, or uh, generated pipeline, I mean. And right now, there's a lot of SMB work that could be signed, delivered, you know, sealed, delivered, without ever having a meeting purely because of good marketing done on the demand side, where you have a proper inbound funnel based on education and buyer experience, and they just buy. And so they might even skip sales altogether and go right to CS because they've deconstructed the buyer's experience to go and give them what they need exactly when when they want it, or given them the choice to educate in the way they see fit, like asynchronous demo videos, transparency on pricing, But so many people are so scared about 
intellectual property. They don't realize that there's nothing special about them. And so they miss the whole point. Like, I don't know how many people tell us that they don't have competitors. They're spending the money already. They're spending the money on something. They have some priorities to spend this quarter to go and invest. What are those and why is it more important or not than what you're selling, right? It's it's almost like some of the sales fundamentals. I don't know if it's because of compensation or because of pressure or because of private equity and venture capital, the cost of capital now, what exactly it is that in the past 10 years that got us away from the basics. But meetings don't mean dollars anymore. Because if I booked a meeting without selling the problem and having an understanding that that problem is worth solving, that's a useless meeting. And now you just raise CAC and now you just increase burn for what? I mean, we see this at all sizes of companies, but it does come directly from the go-to-market strategy. And if I was a startup, usually the way that this works is I find a few early adopters to prove the value of the product, Mm -hmm. right? I (laughs) rub shoulders, give them a discount, say, hey, you should really check it out. And then I take that usage data and I go to venture capitalists and I go raise some more money. And then I hire a bunch of sellers to find and win over leads to continue that acquisition motion. And then we start to get into this special child syndrome where some they pick up some marketing book that says you need to pick a category to evangelize. And always, this is such a common mistake. And I feel so, so sorry for sellers who have to deal with this marketing nonsense, which is it's usually some sort of niche or like new category, right? I saw a site the other day that does creative ops. What the hell is creative ops? One, nobody knows what creative ops is. If you went to any marketing director. I saw one that said creative marketing the other day. (laughs) I sure hope it is. It's like, wow, if you weren't creative, what would you be? Unemployed? And then and then they run marketing to show how great the product is, right? The funny thing about, well, and this is especially in startup land and SaaS land is just filled with companies that struggle against this, is if I'm selling this this product in creative ops, which is basically just being able to deal with marketing revisions more effectively, endless revisions by committee means. That's what makes it creative? A lot. Uh, right. I mean, you know, it's an oxymoron, Nick. But let's say I'm, I have to sell this tool. I mean, consider the thousands of dollars, tens of thousands, that a marketing team is already spending on Adobe products, the amount of money they're already spending on project management, the amount of money they're already spending on people whose job on the day-to-day is just to solve for this. And now what? You come to them with this supposedly great product that solves a problem that they have? It's true. And this is to your point about competition, that it's true. Maybe you're the first person in the space, but what you're you're not competing against another company who offers the same tool. You're competing against either the status quo or you're competing against the risk reversal or the perceived value of the product, right? A lot of people, especially creatives, but a lot of people do the best work that they can with just what they have. And a clunky workflow isn't worth, you know, f- spending an, another five grand a year or whatever for their team to solve. They'll say, yeah, that sounds nice. And then they move on with their lives and they never think about it again. And that's where it's like, competition isn't just another company who offers a similar product or another company who has similar marketing, right? So what I've been thinking about this, I'll go back to the T. So I've been I've been trying to figure this out because the way I've mentally compartmentalized this and like my go-to method is economics or business model, selling the concept, and then the reality of implementation. 
So what I've always done, that is how I work through my mental sales process. And I'm like, well, where the hell did this go wrong? And I think that it never got updated to the time when there weren't options. Hmm. So if I'm in a niche and like I'm Gmail and then Microsoft launches Teams and now I have internal messaging, but they're the same price. Yeah. And you guys are struggling because you have too much email and it would make more sense if you could just message each other directly. Two separate problems, one better solution. And so people put themselves in these boxes thinking that people are looking at the solution and comparing it to find these subtle nuances that make one better than the other. Like when we bought our CRM, I'm like, okay, we live in Google Workspace. Naturally, that's what I'm, how I'm spending my time. So what is the natural addition to have a CRM that does that? But people don't look at it that way. And I see it all the time when they're selling stuff because it's like, they're like, oh man, the customer said that they're going to cancel because it's too expensive because they can get an email provider that's cheaper. And it's like, well, you sold them Google Workspace and Google Cloud and every single threw everything at them but the the kitchen table, charged them a premium for it, and then said, look, you have everything you need to succeed. And all they think is that they're paying for email. And so they cancel for an email provider because that was the only piece of the puzzle that they were comparing. They never actually connected the dots. And my question to you is, is that their job? The buyer's job? Or was marketing or did marketing fail on demand by educating them on the full value? Did marketing fail to go and connect all the puzzle pieces, put on the table, explain the workflows and the processes that they already had and how it connected to that? Where where did it fall apart? And this is only more complicated by the vast amount of engineers that just said, ah, I can make that too. Let's go make some money and built, you know, 15,000 lookalike products that are completely useless compared to anything else. They're just the same thing. And then they expect to make it up on relationship building or, you know, marketing prowess or whatever else. And I think this is the hardest time it's ever been to be a buyer because the differences aren't clear and not easy to find. So it's like how much we all love legalese and reading contracts. That is what it's like to be a buyer right now is reading through legal contracts. And I think if we take that empathy to heart when we're selling or when we're marketing, That would change the game. But these cheap tricks just don't work. The only asterisk I'll add is that uh, you said something along the lines of like, nobody really is looking at the category. Uh, The only asterisk I'll add is a small percentage of people are, but they are people who are both Are you going to say they're marketers? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, but they're, they're buyers who are both product and problem aware. Like to your example of the CRM that we purchased, we understood the landscape. We understood what we were trying to solve. We figured out, you know, the differences there. But the problem is, and and to your question about like educating buyers and figuring out the best ways to achieve adoption, I think that is a level higher than any individual team member or any individual team. To me, that is the entire go-to-market strategy is who are we trying to sell to and how will they find the most value out of this product? And marketing plays a role and sales plays a role, and success teams play a role, right? And increasingly larger companies, the what what I notice most, which is very frustrating, is that success often understands a lot more about the kinds of uh, value customer sets might provide, or the specific things and the things that are extremely capable inside the product suite, or that a buyer can do inside the product. And... Yet, when we come to product marketing, for example, 
it's not a one-to-one. And this is the difference where it's like part of education isn't just evangelizing a position in a market. And part of selling isn't just talking about a specific value hypothesis, right? Like it's all of these things together come in little variations of flavor at each stage of the buying process from somebody who's never heard about the company to really loyal customer who wants to renew year over year. And that's where I think the seller often gets the short end of the stick in that scenario because they have to convince the buyer that it's worth purchasing. But so many companies don't equip the seller with the right kinds of information to make that conversation easy. Or marketing's run a campaign. Yeah, it's only one deal stage. Right. It's like this little narrow piece instead of a much grander vision of how sales fits in. I actually told someone the other day, I was like, you know, I look at a lot of sales enablement documentation or battle cards that are in their CRM, and they're basically designed to help them negotiate. So maybe the last 10%, and they missed 90% of the problem. And I was like, this is why you're missing quota is you totally missed the boat. And I'm like, the reality is what you're planning for used to be the truth pre-COVID. That used to be the norm. I sold in those environments. Like I remember inbound marketing when HubSpot originally put that out and they would blast out emails. And I'm like, oh my God, not another one. I'm still working through all the crap in my email right now. (laughs) But we also didn't have as much options. And the problem was a lot clearer because there was less solutions. So there were, like I said, less subtle nuances. So you know, there wasn't as many brands, there wasn't as many options. So it's like, okay, do I want a sitting desk or do I want a standing desk? Do I want a Ferrari or do I want a Honda? And now today it's a paralysis by choice, right? Like, and this is interesting, actually. I, I, I wonder your take on this. This makes me think of you at MI, or at the Museum of Science with that uh, color game where you're oh. like, playing with the, oh, and there's like, <laughs> it's red and you're like, Yes, but there's 10,000 variations of red. So which red is the right red? <laughs> and I think that's what buyers are trying to do. And so what they're doing is they're nudging the person beside them with the fear of messing up. You're like, am I close? What do you think? <laughs> what should I change? How close am I? Right? Because they just don't know. No. And that I think that's the, the piece that a lot of SDRs in particular, I think, aren't trained on, right? You know, we've talked with so many enablement professionals and sales directors, and it's so clear that most onboarding is about how great the product is, a little about who they sell to, and not a lot about what's changed in the market and why buyers should care. And the truth is that most of the time, I mean, sure, there's this one problem that's more company, which is, are you selling an undifferentiated product? And that's a whole other ballgame. But even if you're selling a great product, right? Buyers are still paralyzed by the amount of information and the amount of choices that they have to solve problems. And most often, and this is so true on Cold Outbound, most often they don't know what to do. They don't even, I mean, sometimes they don't even know the problem is a problem. They thought, oh, this is just the way the world works. And so there's an education angle there. But even beyond that, the market has changed in X industry. Healthcare has changed. Finance has changed. Marketing has changed. Whatever. The buyers are probably aware of those changes because they're experiencing it, but nobody's ever connected the dots for them. Nobody's ever said, oh, hey, are you experiencing this? Because that means this, or you're probably also uh, finding you can't achieve X, right? And they go, wait, that's why? 
I didn't really think about that. The number of times we've heard that before, where just like a simple connect the dots between a trend and a symptom of pain. And they're like, oh yeah, that is really true. I never thought about it that way. So going back to your original, one of your original questions about compensation. Mm-hmm. Compensation for SDRs encourages busyness. End of story. It's not incentivizing the right action. I won't go too much deeper, but if you look at how the world is evolving, we're moving out of the world of guilty until proven innocent and innocent until proven guilty. And I think this is going to screw up a lot of go-to-markets because what is the trigger that now is the time? You might have impact from a win-loss and understanding yeah, how you where the value is felt and what- How you make a difference. And you could go and start with that. But like you had said earlier, tying this back, if you don't have lead stages, you know, like your top, but like, okay, so they come in, they're new. Once I start building them out and who I need to talk to, then I'm working. And I've once I've sent outreach, then I'm actually working that lead, that individual, right? And then once they start responding, they're a priority. And then if they book a meeting, to me, that's the first, you know, stage of a pipeline. If it's they're qualified, they understand the need, but the timing is off, that's nurture. And then as a company, you need to decide where that fits in the full spectrum of sales, marketing, and CS, you know, who's who in the zoo. But if we don't break it down into those steps that everyone follows and everyone understands, how do you learn? How do you benchmark progress? How do you manage performance? How do you know what's working? It was funny. I was telling you the other day when I was starting a new campaign, I'm like, Morgan, what the hell? <laughs> I sent out 47 or 49 uh, messages and I try to keep 50 in my working bucket of in- individuals that I'm talking to, and they all res- all but five responded. And I'm like, I can't keep up with my numbers. Like, there's just too many because people kept responding. But I think that is the guilty, you know, innocent until proven guilty. When you actually lead with an observation, something you could bring to court that either what they were thinking about because it was annoying them, but they couldn't quite put like put their you know finger on it, what it actually was. Or like they heard like going around the office that it was something to consider, or they know it was what was getting in the way of them getting a promotion. That conversation, because it's about a problem and you're aligning on it based on something they saw, it's an easy conversation to have because you're not asking anything. All you're saying is, hey, I saw this. This is what it told me. Am I completely out out to lunch or is this the world that you're living in? And they're like, well, close. Yeah, people love to say It's actually no. this. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it's just such an easy conversation for them. And I think when we talk about like sales math, like I honestly, and this is going to get me in shit and it already has, I think quota should just be designed for them to pay themselves. And I think marketing should have a quota to pay for themselves, not to make money, just to pay for themselves. And I think the entire go-to-market should have an accelerator bonus and it could be tied to the individual or it could be a team as well. Like it could be 80 to, I don't really care what the split is, but at the end of the day, I'm really sick and tired of hearing people say they can't sell and there's no whatever. And you talk about Freakonomics and how they're judged. And then you look at the company hit 200 or 250% of their target, yet the average seller is only hitting, you know, sub 50% quota. Mm-hmm. Like I can't think of a nice word to say how I actually feel <laughs> like that is that is as close to slavery as there could be. And it's a yeah. total disregard for humanity. And those people should go to jail 
or at least be kicked out of companies because without yeah, humanness, humanness and expert intuition is what makes sales valuable and not replaceable. The moment that we put them into that frenzied state and put them into survival mode and we discount their humanness is the moment they lose their ability to think with their greater, like that greater thought process. When you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think people also forget that when I'm in survival mode, I make stupid decisions. I make stupid decisions because I'm trying to get the hell out of there. And it's not until later after their emotion is gone that I'm like, oh shit, that was so stupid because you said something you didn't didn't mean or you said something offensive because you were highly emotional in survival fight or flight. Most of these sellers are in fight or flight and you're expecting them to do above industry benchmarks. It's really messed up. Yet you didn't take any effort to build that environment for them to work in. And you're not holding marketing accountable to doing anything useful, but... I was just about to say, I'm, I'm not bought into the idea of a marketing quota, but what I am bought into is a business owner mindset about fixed costs and basically variable costs. That when we run a marketing campaign, we should be generating enough revenue, not just to cover the cost of the campaign, but over the entirety of the year to cover the cost of the team. The reason that I have exceptions to that, Nick, mostly comes to brand work that is often expensive to the bottom line. Okay, so Brad, we're, we're not we're not taking brand. Brand is separate. So if we cut brand out and say utilization rate. See, I just can't so cut si- brand no, out. No, man. no, 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 no. We gotta I, we gotta <laughs> think like a seller here, like a business owner. So let's but think the only so like a marketer. That, hold so on, Nick. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Mm. If the only reason the company's gonna be around in three to five years is because, because they're sales. <laughs> is because there <laughs> is at least some investment in brand. I understand the impulse to look at more performance marketing and, and short-term work. And I also agree with you that the reason the company's consistent revenue is created and closed is because of the sales team. We're all on the same team here. Can you break apart brand for me? How you would qualify that as a useful investment? So what to you, because this I think this is a really important conversation that doesn't get brought up enough. Yeah. So I can give you my opinion after, but like, okay, what makes brand valuable? What makes brand valuable? I can just give you my response if you want, if it help, it's helpful. Sure. Yeah. I mean, give me a starting point. Trust and credibility in the market and uh, the ability to reduce pricing pressures. Okay. Yeah. I would generally agree. The first thing that popped into my head is that a brand campaign or brand marketing done right, which is a big asterisk in the B2B world, but a brand campaign done right means when your sellers call, your buyers know who you are, yes. which sort of folds into the credibility idea that you have. And mm-hmm. the problem with that is, is that if you take two paid ad campaigns and you take one paid ad campaign and you run it a performance marketing campaign, you can measure cost per click and then you can drive that number down to qualified pipeline and opportunity to win ratio where you can measure the short-term effectiveness over six to 12 months of a paid ad campaign to overall pipeline. You can run the exact same campaign from a brand marketing lens and you can't do that. There is no well, different, mapping to different the numbers, arrest. right? It's a different, yeah, it's right. a different investment is, horizon. So this is why I don't think we should cut out brand from this idea of marketing's budget, because those investments, basically identical campaigns uh, from, from a cost perspective, not from a creative perspective, not from an execution perspective, but from a cost perspective, they will look similarly expensive, yet only one is driving pipeline in the next 12 months. 
we should make some space for the marketing team to have some budget to invest in that longer-term investment horizon so that sellers over the next two years, 24 months to 36 months, actually have a leg up in the market. Like this is, I understand the... Right, and like the big asterisk on I, all I of agree this with is, you, but this, is, but this is like, well, that's why I said well utilization. Executed. So this... Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> so if I said like, if, if I was only judging marketing on 60% of their budget on headcount and resources. Okay, yeah. Uh-huh. And so we did... And that's how we did it. So it's like, okay. So I think about it like prospecting. If I only spend four hours a week prospecting and I'm not hitting my goal, yeah. what do I do? Right. Either I add more prospecting time in or I get better at prospecting or whatever <laughs> that variable is, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> so if marketing is spending 60% of their time on short-term goals, like six months or less, less campaigns, whether it's ABM or demand, yep. take your pick and it's not adding up. Mm-hmm. I agree with you there. I don't think... And I and I when I mean quota as I it shouldn't be f- to fire people. It should be to educate. It's almost like I think this is one of the most ironic things ever. In the UK, a gentleman created the IQ test to find out who are the individuals that the school system was failing. And what does the school system do? Uses it as a way to go and find the people that are doing better in the school to give them extra instead of the people that the school system was failing. And I feel like this is how quota is being used now. And so it's like, okay, as a marketing division, as a sales development division, us coming together, where's the best bang for our buck, time and resources? And I think that's where the quota is being, it should be used that way. Because of course, everybody's looking at investment dollars, but we don't want to be like Salesforce and all the tech companies laying off 10, 15, 20% of our labor, you know, because we didn't do this calculation, run at a healthy run rate and, you know, take this into account. But I think we just got away from the the right metrics. And if we had that shared metrics across sales, marketing, and CS, and also post-transaction to whether it's CSMs or account managers, and we had those metrics, we would learn faster. We would call it intuition, whatever you want. Like if the numbers don't show up the way, I don't need an AI to go and tell me that my pipeline's low, Like, (laughs) but it's because I track numbers, right? Can I say something that I do agree with, by the way? Uh Uh-oh. Is that there should be accelerators for the entire team. So this, this is what's really weird to me, having been a marketer and then coming in and working with sellers, is that the sales organization is often heavily compensated for successful wins. And I think rightfully so, particularly in organizations that have heavily dysfunctional marketing teams or don't have an aligned go-to-market. I think if we're instituting at least benchmarks to hit, and you know, if you find quota offensive as the term for a marketing team, then it's a revenue benchmark or it's some sort of operations excellence yeah. number that we're trying to an opportunity achieve. to close rate or something too. Yeah, something like that. Those accelerators for the entire team orient the team to work better together. Like this is Amen. fundamental great game of business idea, right? I don't know how familiar you are with this, but employee stock ownership plans and all sorts of either profit share plans or the ability for companies to orient entire teams so each individual knows their number or how they contribute to the bigger number. And then if everybody is hitting the numbers, everybody wins. Everybody gets bonuses or accelerators or profit share or or whatever, however that works. And it is astounding to me, and I know part of the reason why this is, but it is astounding to me that companies don't institute that across the go-to-market and only institute it for the sales team. It just blows my mind because it's like a really easy way for people to go off in five, six different directions. So I think 
the way you think about branding is how most companies are thinking about marketing at all. And so the way I internalize this, I think sellers are like a franchise. And so what do companies do? So if you have a McDonald's franchise and it sucks. Yeah, it's a bad McDonald's. What does the franchise do for you? Like you just had, you're in a bad location. Like the geography is just not working in your favor. There's a lot more competitors in your region. What does McDonald's do for you? Nothing. They just keep doing the same marketing that they were doing regardless because you don't matter. You as an individual, it, you, they don't care if you win or lose. And I think this is the mentality that needs to change because like what we're talking about today is, well, instead of being an individual franchisee, you know, we're a team working together and it's like, oh, like, you know, I've noticed that at lunchtime that uh, there's a new development that's going on and there's a lot of like iron workers and like construction and like cement guys that are coming in. You know, I know they're on TikTok. Maybe we could run some ads to like blue collar and let's get more people in at lunchtime. But because there's no feedback loop from the franchisee to the franchise, the sales to the marketing or CS posts about who they hate working, how is this supposed to get better? Just keep on marketing the same way. <laughs> this is why I think SDRs often get the short end of the stick here and, and organizations that have full cycle AEs as well. Because, and this is mostly stuff I think I've learned from you over the past number of years. Uh-oh. I know, this is really dangerous. <laughs> it's that when you're trying to be strategic about who you're prospecting, and, and strategic in a broad sense, you're trying to be intentional about who you're talking to and being efficient with your time and utilizing your resources to the best. The actual answers to those questions often come from outside sales. <laughs> like they often come from customer support. Does that hurt to say? <laughs> no. <laughs> the smile on your face says it might. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but like how many organizations don't create that feedback loop for SDRs? Like, how many SDRs have we worked with where literally they're given, I don't know, an ICP criteria and some account list to work, and then they're just let out into the wild and saying how great their product is and, and get to like develop their own messaging? Like there's no none of that real support to make sales development work. So I can't remember who we were talking to on the podcast. Actually, I think we did a live show on it about uh, building empathy with customers and how... Mm. It was a, uh, oh, what's her name from Aspireship? She was saying that uh, when they had the product for nail sal for salons, yes. the booking service, and I can't remember what the full product. Christine Rogers. Thank you. Uh, she was saying that they would go and give them like 50 bucks, get them to go and get a service because most of the sellers had never got a service and to experience the give and take. And then once they learn about the product to figure out, because these are existing customers, where they're missing value and what they're already paying for. And I think the other step that would be really interesting on top of that, because that's brilliant, or getting them to shadow CS as a starting place. The other thing is, okay, then work with sales development that are pitching it well, or account executives that are like kind of the initiation where they're starting to get traction, is how is that problem understood? How does it show up in their world? And how do they explain it? And how do they see it? How, what is the reality of it? And then from there... What do they think is the solution or why is it not worth solving now or why is it? And I think that like, it's so close, but I think we're so like enablement, rev ops. I think we're so close. And I think that it's just, I know this has come across as more ranty while it is hot takes, but <laughs> I think we're so much closer than people realize. It's just, we need to change a little bit of the metrics. We need to provide more coaching and we need to go and change deal stages from what's easy for us to what more buyer centric 
Because if we look at the buyer's actions and their mentality or mindset, that as a collective, not just one individual, that will signal forecasting at a truer rate than anything else. And then we can just focus on what are those steps that got us there faster, easier, and ultimately, who's the right person to be talking to? And if that is shared amongst everyone, oh my God, hire me now. Yes. Sorry, buddy, I'm gone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think just to close out this, at times heated conversation, I love this one. I think ultimately we know, this has always been the case, but it's more important now than ever, is that the individual credibility of the seller matters a lot. Mm. And if you could find a unicorn... Did I just hear you say that branding of sellers is more important than the company? No, I definitely did not say that. (laughs) No, 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 no. I said credibility of the seller, not branding of the seller. I ain't going to be branding any seller. The credibility of the seller... Is uh, is if you is, guys get to see this video, the look on Morgan's face, it's, <laughs> it was worth it. <laughs> it's true though, because if you could find a magical software developer who has the knack for sales, small percentage of people, right? But that software developer is going to have so much credibility with the people they talk to, not because she was a software developer, but because she knows the terminology. She knows how the workflow works. She knows the inside lingo. She understands what the software people she's selling to are going through on the day-to-day. She can talk the talk and walk the walk and understand how people are actually working. And, And we know this is the classic challenge. If you're selling to VPs of sales, if you've never been a VP of sales, you don't know what it's like to work in that role. And I think to what you're pointing, It is not a far step from where we are today to reach a point where sales development staff actually have a sense of that, actually have not just the credibility, but also the ingredients of credibility with their buyers. And that's just more coaching, right? That's just some additional training, the right kinds of training, the right kinds of direction. The right metrics. And the right metrics, exactly. Uh, So I want to go and throw it out there for our audience. I want to know if you think that I want to... No, just kidding. <laughs> but I, if you guys have any like interesting like global trends or like sales or marketing trends that you would like us to discuss, I, I would like to keep doing this. So if there's anything, that shoot us a DM, shoot us an email. And I want to let you guys know, and you've heard me say this before, and I, I really mean it, it is 2023. It is no longer okay to suffer in silence. Sales, marketing, CS, ops... You know, if you want to go and jump in our DMs too, like we understand the struggle. And if you need help, you do not need to buy anything. Just reach out, shoot us a DM, shoot us an email, and we'll do our best to either help you ourselves or point you in the right direction or make a referral. But just know that you matter. And 2023 is the year for you. Thank you for listening. And uh, Morgan. Yeah. I just want to let you know I won. And uh, oh. have a great <laughs> You won, huh? I didn't realize this is a competition. Well, it's sales versus marketing. Well, I will say, I think I probably then won the the brand marketing item. If if I'm winning anything, I'm winning that. Mm -hmm. Hey, we know how hard implementing this stuff is. That's why this podcast exists. We decided to take it a step further and start the One Up Club to give you the frameworks and resources you need to move the dial in 2023. Learn more at b2bpowerhour.com slash join. Because we know you have a quota and you can't afford to wait.